You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It doesn't take long to see, as you scour the list of the missing and dead in the Maui fires, that the Filipino community has been greatly impacted. Many are at a loss for words to describe the grief and loss. This morning, we talked to Maui attorney Alfredo Evangelista, who's also the assistant editor of the Phil M. Voice, the paper serving the Filipino community there on the Valley Isle. He says fundraising efforts among prominent leaders of Filipino heritage have ramped up to meet the huge need in that segment of the community who've been deeply affected. The Filipino Community Center is called Bini at Ani, which means seed and harvest, and the members are coming together to grow for the future. As Evangelista explains, this latest effort is called Tulung for Lahaina. Tulung means help in both the Tagalog and Ilocano languages of the Philippines. And boy, does our Filipino community need help because so many families of Filipino uh, descent live in Lahaina. And that's correct, Catherine. Uh, approximately 40%, at least 40% of Lahaina's residents are of Filipino ancestry, many of them having roots back to uh, the first uh, sakadas uh, or plantation workers who came to Hawaii in 1906. You know, I was looking at the uh, spreadsheet that I saw on Maui now of the missing families and, gosh, going alphabetically down the list, so many Filipino names. It's a sad list to look at, and I've kind of glanced at it from time to time, but Every time I, I see those names, I'm really emotional. And I know I'm not from Lahaina. I didn't have any direct property loss or family loss. But, and I can't say I feel the pain because I didn't feel it, but I just am so emotional when uh, I hear their stories. Yes, because many uh, of the those workers, you know, move from plantation jobs to the tourism jobs, and many of the housekeepers are living in hotel rooms right now. Yes, and let me just share you a couple of the stories that I've learned uh, or heard uh, from some of my clients or their families and friends. For example, an elderly woman barely escaped by jumping into the ocean. Her husband unfortunately perished. An elderly man who built a small fortune consisting of four homes, lost everything and almost lost his life when he initially refused to evacuate. A woman who lost her husband a month before the fire planned to return to the Philippines after selling her home. She escaped the fire, but the home is now gone. A veteran hosts the paw print and ashes of his dog who died a couple of years prior to the fire can still be found. His dog helped him survive his PTSD. And a family gathered their assets and started a business just after the pandemic. Their new business, as well as three others, was destroyed, as well as about eight homes of several family members. So, so these stories of Filipino community members losing everything just breaks our heart. Um, a lot of them came with practically nothing on their backs as immigrants, and now they really have nothing on their backs. You know, it is just heartbreaking to think that, yeah, we have extended families and extended loss and extended pain. I'm sure many of them are still kind of shell-shocked, you know, trying to process their losses. Exactly. And I did speak with a, a family member who had gathered their uh, assets, started a business, and the whole family lost like four businesses, eight homes. And she was just still in shock to really kind of explain her story, because I'm also the assistant editor of the Filipino community newspaper here on Maui called The Film Voice, and we're writing a story this week about several businesses of owned by Filipinos that were destroyed, and I wanted to get her story, and she just had a difficult time talking about that, and, and I understood that, so I said, okay, this is, you know, what I understand and this is what I'm going to write, and it's okay. And she said, yeah, that's okay. And she basically said, yeah, I mean, uh, we're just in shock. And we're learning more, too, about, you know, some of the red tape that's involved in applying for, you know, federal loans from, like, the Small Business Administration. You know, it's not always clean cut, and sometimes people apply and they're turned down. 
you know, and then where else do they go, you know, or some maybe don't want to apply for the loans because they are not sure that, you know, they'll be able to repay it. But this whole effort that you're behind, I understand that the number of prominent Filipino leaders in our community across the state are lending, you know, their support because they do want to help these other Filipinos. Right. So let me talk a little bit more about what we've called the Tulung for Lahaina Fund that's coordinated by Binetani because at least 40% of the residents are of Filipino ancestry. Uh, Binetani decided to create a fund that would grant $750 to one homeowner who lost their principal place of residence to a business owner who lost their business in a brick-and-mortar setting or three lost an immediate family member. And right now, there's over 300 applicants. And so we reached out to our good friends who are quite prominent. And uh, let me just kind of give you the names that have consented to support the Tulung for Lahaina Fund. And that's uh, Felipe Abinsai Jr., Simon Akoba Jr., Edmund Axon, Amy Agbayani, Vince Baguio Jr., Amy Tumimbang Burns, Robin Campagnano, Benjamin Cayetano, Mary Cordero, Luella Costales, Maribek Dar, Eddie Flores, Peter Ganaban, Savannah Gankiewicz, A.J. Halagal, Gladys Quinto Maroni, Glory McCaleb, Sherry Minor McNamara, and Phil Sabado. And it's a real community effort. Um, and we're really hoping that those who can uh, will contribute uh, to our Tulum for Lahaina Fund. From governors to judges, folks who really pulled themselves up and made a name for themselves and have contributed so much to our community here across the state. And their generosity, because many of them have also contributed already, and their generosity in, in the spirit and their sense of Aloha, or in Filipino, their Bayanihan spirit, really is helping our Tulung for Lahaina Fund. And, and so you were just uh, launching then this uh, fundraising effort? Well, we launched it in, I think, in mid-August, and we were initially concentrating on getting the applications out to uh, uh, those who fit those categories, and then started to kind of do um, some effort to fundraise, and then when we started to look at the numbers of those who were applying, we said, well, we better really wrap it up in terms of our fundraising. And uh, the three Filipino newspapers throughout the state, the Philam Voice on Maui, the Philam Courier on Oahu, and the Hawaii Filipino Chronicle on Oahu have all generously given us a free ad space, a whole page ad in their upcoming issues. Yes, and I'm, I'm sure the radio stations are also trying to get the word out as well. Yes, uh, Filipino Radio on Maui, KPMW, which is owned by the Piros family, has run out some interviews. I know I was on our friend Rick Hamada's program a couple weeks ago, and I believe uh, Juna Binsai has a radio program. He was telling me that he was going to uh, keep announcing it, and I believe also Amelia Casamina on KNDI has been promoting it as well. Yes, and, and we all know about uh, the Filipinos' desire to help their family members, you know, back in the Philippines, and so many send money or, uh, or boxes of goods back, you know, to help others who are less fortunate. And, and that's the, um, the so-called balik bayan box. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's an interesting concept because no matter where you are, you always want to help your family. A lot of people from the Philippines have including my dad, who came in 1946 as a plantation worker, came to Hawaii in seek of a better life and also to bring the uh, rest of the families here. My dad and my mom were able to bring two of my dad's uh, younger brothers, and they in turn brought their families here, and they've all contributed to the fabric of uh, Hawaii society. And now Maui needs to reach out and say, hey, uh, please, all our Kababayans, our Filip Filipinos, uh, as well as the general community, especially the general community, please assist us. 
we need your help. The members of the Filipino community in Lahaina may be a little shy to ask for help. Uh, They're still kind of walking around trying to figure out the process of FEMA, insurance, et cetera, where to go for help. And and, um, they're worried about the jobs. Many of them were in the hotel industry. Jobs are gone. Tourism is down. They're trying to open it up in, uh, I guess, next month. But it's got to take some time. And folks are even saying that this is probably going to be worse than the pandemic. Yes, and we know that so many different organizations are stepping up. You know, the ILWU union, Local 5, you know, the hotel workers. Those unions, you know, have deep roots in the community from plantation days to the current visitor industry. And, yeah, all trying to do what they can to help uh, the, the members that have suffered. And the union's leadership and support during this time is sorely needed and greatly appreciated. All right. We will keep an eye out for this fundraising effort, but we uh, do want to thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Catherine. That was Alfredo Evangelista, Maui attorney and assistant editor of the Phil M. Voice, talking to us about this latest community effort to lung for Lahaina, help for Lahaina. The Moth returns to Hawaii Theater on October 27th. They're looking for Hawaii storytellers to take part. Accommodations and travel to and from Honolulu are covered for selected storytellers. Learn more and submit your pitch at hawaiipublicradio.org slash themoth. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, featuring LEED certification services for residential and commercial building projects. Learn more at greenbuildinghawaii.com. ugly fight over water rights on Maui got uglier with the recent wildfires. Here to join us in studio is HBR reporter Ku'uvehi Hiraishi. Uh, you know, you were taking a kind of a different look at this whole water rights issue. We're looking at the history in, in this piece today. Uh, Kaua'ula Valley taro farmer uh, Charlie Palakiko, who traces his genealogy back to that valley, which sits right above Lahaina Town, uh, tucked in uh, sort of that steep uh, valley of Mauna Kahala Vai. He returned home after uh, the Pioneer Sugar Plantation closed in 1999, and, you know, he noticed the soil was completely dry, but he could still make out the outline of the taro patches. So looking at the history of taro in the area in the mid-1800s, the landscape of Lahaina was actually dominated by more than 1,700 taro patches. And then in Kaua'ula Valley, where he now lives and his ancestors have lived, uh, they recorded 350 taro patches. Uh, but once water began uh, being diverted, folks know this history uh, for the sugar for sugarcane cultivation, taro farmers from Kaua'ula, uh, including Polakiko's own uh, Kupuna actually uh, fought back in one of the earliest well-recorded legal battles over water rights in West Maui, the 1895 court case Horner v. Kumulili'i. Yes, so our names are on that list. If you look on the list, get our name right there. You're like, yeah, but get not just us. I mean, it's a bunch of families. That's, that's everybody that was had pieces land up here, I guess. But they all went fight for their water, and they all went to court. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. They won them. Plantation came. They, you know, we all know the history of what happened. Yeah. The water was never returned. The water was taken, and plantation was doing whatever they did all those years after that. But we always want to stick with that what they fought for. So it was an unusual outcome for the time. And just for some background, the Hawaii Supreme Court did rule against pioneer mill owner John Horner. Horner had sued 60 Native Hawaiians from West Maui. Uh, who claimed rights to water flowing through Kaua'ula Valley. And, you know, the privatization of land that everyone's uh, sort of uh, familiar with during the Mahele, 
uh, that did not include the privatization of water. So this sort of bedrock legal principle that uh, had secured native tenants, uh, rights of native tenants to the water, like uh, Palakikos. Uh, but it would take another century for that court decision to be backed up with regulatory laws to enforce it, right? So the state water code, uh, in-stream flow standards, uh, the Commission on Water Resource Management. So once the sugar plantation left town, Palakiko became the first in Lahaina to farm taro once again. But uh, soon, you know, a private corporation uh, would buy up some of that plantation land and this fight as we know it ensued. Every weekend we would come, we would work, we'd do so much, come the next weekend, work some more. And eventually we got, we cleaned it all the way down to here. Opened wow. up all the patches, because before we had the Hawaii running, yeah. we, we was planting. We had like that patch right there, was yeah. only, we had one patch. And we had one hose and we had dropped them in that patch. And we started one turtle patch. It was like, hey, we got a patch <laughs> up here, you know? Like, but that's how we started, was with hose. We did them at the right time. They wasn't using the water, they had extra water. So I, we built and we went on from there and then they built their homes. Homes was coming up, water became an issue. Lucky we had our patches, you know, and then that was the battle. Like, in the beginning it was alright because never have plenty homes. But when the homes got big and they started taking the water, bro, they took almost everything and they left me just whatever was left. So Palakika is, of course, referring to, at least in Kaua'ula Valley, uh, the West Maui Land Company, uh, who owns and operates the irrigation system put in place by Pioneer Mill. Uh, Pioneer Mill had sort of, uh, you know, uh, found uh, or bought all this land up in West Maui, but different companies since its closure have gone ahead and, you know, scooped up some of that land and the irrigation systems that were built upon it. Um, so the county of Maui, for example, will use water that's diverted through this system to feed uh, local residents in their homes. And then when it comes to fighting fires, this water is also um, part of, you know, that system. So uh, once development began to, to require more water in the area, that's when the state uh, commission and water resource management moved in and restored stream flow. Um, they set those stream flow standards that would require the company to leave enough uh, water in the stream for taro farmers like the Polakikos. But this was only the last 20 or so years, this recent um, fight over water. Uh, but he says, you know, it's been that battle ever since. And, and especially now in the wake of the Lahaina wildfires, the rights to water that uh, generations of Polakikos family have fought to maintain are, are being challenged once again. Right now, seriously, I really don't know what to do. All I can do is clean up patches, plant everything we get, and keep going. Because I don't know if it's going to come down to that. might just come down to, hey, how much color you get? Okay, that's how much water you get. And I've been doing them one man this time. So now, I slowly put in the word out, you know, we'll be on good process for help those that they don't want nothing right now. Come, get purpose. Come, we'll go up there, we'll go clean. Some therapy up here. Get your feet wet. We're going to make this place nice. We're going to plant some color. You know what I mean? Like, this is some, some healing up here. Therapy, like therapy, but with tarot. Mm. This guy is hilarious, Charlie Polakiko. Um, but I reached out to uh, the uh, Commission on Water Resource Management because we do know that uh, Governor Josh Green had uh, restored the state water code and what that meant uh, to changes that were made under the emergency proclamation. And so there was a suspension initially of. Um, the, the standards are set stream flows for Kaua'ula put in place immediately after uh, the fire and those because the, the emergency proclamation was amended and uh, this water code restored, those, are, um, those uh, stream flow standards have been rescinded. So water is flowing uh, once again, but of course we do know um, Commission Deputy Khalil Manuel was also redeployed at the time that was not under uh, emergency proclamation powers so that redeployment was a personnel matter and won't um, be uh, reconsidered at this time, especially in terms of the emergency proclamation. So is he there now or has still been redeployed somewhere else in the department? He's not, yeah, no longer with the Commission on Water Resource Management exactly, yeah, but still redeployed within Department of Land and Natural Resources. Um, another uh, sort of uh, 
issue at the time for uh, Lahaina was a uh, water management area designation, which was put on the area, I believe, last year. And this just allows for groundwater and surface water allows uh, staff at uh, the Commission on Water Resource Management to take in permits for diversions. So that is up and running again now that the emergency proclamation uh, has been amended. So they're going to start to process water use permit applications for folks like uh, West Maui Land Company asking for a certain amount of water to be diverted. It's sort of that extra layer of protection uh, to ensure that the public trust purposes of the water code are are there and and are being followed. And we should probably explain to the the listeners that, you know, the flap that happened, right, because uh, the company had raised some concerns about whether money, uh, water could be diverted, so in case the firefighters needed to use it for uh, firefighting, uh, and, and that kind of blew up. Right, right. Uh, the, so the the issue was that exactly that they were uh, taking water. Uh, they wanted to divert more water away from the stream to allow for firefighting elsewhere. And there was some concern that folks like the Polakikos and those that are along that stream might not have uh, that water to protect themselves from the fire as well. So that was sort of the beginning of, of that fight. And uh, yeah, that did blow up and lead to, to Manuel's uh, redeployment. Uh, but that's going to be, you know, it's going to be investigated. Uh, the Attorney General's office is looking into the matter. I think we've hired an independent investigator for that. So we will see the, the outcomes of that over the next uh, couple of months. Right. And just to be clear, I know the department has said that, you know, they don't believe it there was any wrongdoing right. or they weren't sure but i think just for everybody's safety and you know everybody's uh, tempers were were, yeah. were 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 running pretty high so best all around to kind of just remove that lightning rod situation and calm things down yeah yeah and we will see the the outcome of that investigation um and but i mean the emergency you know the state water code is back in in place so i think that's going to help with at least what's happening on the ground with with the tower farmers all right well thank you so much kuvehi we've been hearing from hpr's kuvehi reishi you can uh read more on this story at hawaiipublicradio.org This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Today we're shining the spotlight on the healthy avocado in your breakfast uh, in the backyard quiz. Uh, this popular fruit's origins date back to thousands of years ago to Puebla, Mexico, and has since found global fame. Kamehameha, the great horticulturist Don Marin, introduced avocados to Hawaii in the early 19th century. The first major introduction of seeding uh, material was in Lahaina. In 1853, a trek through various neighborhoods may turn up sightings of avocado in many backyard gardens, ranging from the kahalu, the large green cultivar that matures in the fall, the purple skin malama, the common hoss that turns black when ripe, or the bishore variety that is generally larger and more elongated in shape. But it is the charwell variety that represents more than half of the commercial acreage in Hawaii. The green-skinned fruits can weigh 8 to 20 ounces and mature in winter and spring. During the 1980s, there was a push to focus on the production of the charwell avocados for export. Unfortunately, these efforts were not as successful as the industry had hoped. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us why? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NareetHawaii.com. Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at the idea of a shuttle for the popular pillbox hike in Lanikai. Reporter Ben Angerone joins us. Hi, Ben. Hi, Catherine. How's your morning? It's going good. Uh, but, you know, I wouldn't mind being up at the pillbox right now. <laughs> <laughs> Overlooking the sea. Yeah, no, that would be pretty nice. Yes. So, yeah, your story uh, about a possible shuttle. I mean, you know, how firm is that? It's not super firm at this point. At this point, it's an idea that's been talked about. And so this is something that has been brought up by some local residents. For example, Kailua Neighborhood Board Chair Bill Hicks has mentioned to me that he's interested in this shuttle idea. Uh, Representative Lisa Martin mentioned it as a possible idea at the August Kailua Board Neighborhood Board meeting. But at this point, the Department of Land of Natural Resources, which is the organization that controls Kaiva Ridge or uh, Lanikai Pillbox Trail, because it is a state trail, it's under their jurisdiction. Right now, they're talking about an environmental assessment of the area to do trail maintenance. And included in that is also trail management. And so that's that's where we're at right now. We're in very early stages. Nothing's written down about a shuttle at this point. Yeah, but management is key to tourism. We all know that now. And, uh, you know, uh, certainly an idea of a reservation system like we see up at, you know, Diamond Head or over there on Kauai. Uh, yeah, we've got to uh, think about what else can we do. That's completely correct. Yeah. And, and there are interesting sort of uh, things that make it tough on Oahu uh, compared to Diamond Head, or I guess Diamond Head is on Oahu, but uh, compared to, for example, on Kauai, where the shuttles uh, on Kauai and in other jurisdictions, they don't really go into deep suburban neighborhoods to the same extent that some trails, like, for example, Lanikai Pillbox might be in. And so there are their own unique challenges here. And so definitely things to think about and i think definitely a real problem to deal with yeah but you know parking is the the issue right and when we have to institute these three-day parking bans because the emergency vehicles can't get in and out of a community i mean that's not good for public safety Correct. Yeah. And and you bring up an interesting point with parking, and this sort of relates to the restricted parking zones bill that the Honolulu City Council has been deliberating for, for months now, and it just had, I think, their ninth hearing this past Tuesday. It's it's a pretty contentious bill. There's a, it's, you know, parking is a complex issue. And uh, I, I think, com- like, with this shuttle idea, there's it's very related, you know, during these hearings about restricted parking zones, I think a big issue that people might have with it is sure the neighbors right there next to the trailhead might like it, but what about public access for the rest of the island, whether that be residents or visitors? And so this shuttle idea, I think when we talk about public access to beaches and to trails, we talk a lot about it in the context and with the lens of can I drive my car and park there. But a shuttle could make that not as big of a concern if you can take a shuttle there instead. Uh, how reliable would that shuttle be? Who would run it? That's all up in the air if it's even something that the city or the state decides to move forward with. But it's interesting how these two things uh, relate to one another. So we'll have to see what this draft uh, EA says uh, once they've done their due diligence and Mm -hmm. whether we can work in some kind of online reservation system and some kind of fee or, you know, or shuttle. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yep. And something that was interesting when I was talking uh, with the people who run Hanalei Initiatives Shuttle, which is uh, the nonprofit that runs the, the Kauai Shuttle to Hyena State Park is, you know, Kauai used to have a shuttle going back and forth back in, I think, about 2015 or so. But 
what really helped with this iteration of it was restricting the parking over there, giving people an incentive to take the shuttle because otherwise people would just drive their cars. Visitors might rent rental cars and go over. And so, you know, like I mentioned before, nothing's written down at this point about a shuttle, but I, uh, you know, this is a very real problem, this idea of public access and, you know, disturbing neighbors. And so it's one potential solution. Yeah. And it sounds like it's, uh, you know, being discussed. The conversation is, is mm-hmm. ongoing, whether it's at the neighborhood board uh, or, uh, uh, you or at know, the state level, state mm-hmm. level, co- county level. Yes. Yeah, something uh, to look at, uh, you know, a little closer. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, uh, keep on it and we'll see what happens. But thank you so much, Ben. Cool. Thanks so much for your time, Catherine. Hope you have a good one. That was reporter Ben Engrone with today's Reality Check. Uh, You can read the full story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mark Nepo, author of Falling Down and Getting Up, and next time on New Dimensions, I'll be exploring the dance and rhythm of transformation as it moves through our lives. Sunday morning at 11. Author Malia Monakea's new middle-grade novel, Lay in the Fire Goddess, focuses on Anna, a 12-year-old part Hawaiian girl living on the mainland and wrestling with her cultural identity. While reluctantly visiting her grandmother in Hawaii, Anna goes on an epic adventure alongside demigods and mythical creatures to save her best friend. Mauna Kea grew up on the Big Island, graduated from Kamehameha schools, and now lives in Colorado. Today, she's on Oahu, kicking off a statewide school tour. She'll be visiting Title I schools and donating nearly 3,000 copies of her book to students. The conversations Russell Subiona got a chance to sit down with Monica in her studio. When you talk about Anna's kind of her struggle but with her identity, I know when authors write books, they tend to insert a lot of personal experience into their stories. How much of this did you experience personally, this this identity struggle? This story was fun to write because it's it's kind of the perfect blend of my own identity struggle growing up mixed with what I want to pass on to my keiki who are being raised on the continent. So it's a blend of me being here and knowing all the stories and having that insider knowledge, if you will. But nobody here would be foolish enough to be as cocky, I guess, (laughs) as Anna is. So I needed to have her be what my kids are raised on the continent with very flippant attitudes, perhaps toward our mo'olelo. So she's a very solid blend of both lenses. We've talked about Anna and Anna's journey. It's a physical one, but it's also an internal one. I know that many kids are working through their identity during the middle school years. Was this theme of finding and embracing your identity something that you thought your readers would be able to relate to? So it's funny because I cannot imagine this book without that theme now, but when I originally wrote the story, it's the first story I've written in a middle grade fiction genre, and it was purely action adventure, and it was all plot. It didn't really have a heart until my mentors and my agent and my editor really asked me, why did you write this? What's the point of the story? What's what's your heart? And that made me dig a little deeper into what I was going through at that time and what kind of stuck with me my whole life growing up here in Hawaii was that struggle of identity and trying to figure out exactly where I fit in and am I enough? Can I be enough? I went to Kamehameha. Like that's a whole lot of identity right there just in the school. And if you don't 
feel like you look a certain way or talk a certain way or enjoy doing certain things, it can really make you feel like you're not one of them or you're not enough. So that's what I wanted to explore because when you get older, you realize, no, that's in your head to a certain extent and that you are enough. How did you come to choose middle schoolers as as your audience? So funny little technicality on the terminology of middle grade versus middle schoolers. In the publishing world, a middle grade book is actually directed or geared toward readers usually between 8 to 12 years old. And I want to be clear that this book, I mean, any book really, it's not prescribed to you have to be 8 to 12 to read this. Read whatever catches your eye and what interests you and makes you happy, adult, kid, whatever. In general, in life, read what makes you happy. But I wrote this for that age group because at the time I started writing it, my son was 10 and he was big into the Rick Riordan, Percy Jackson, all the Greek mythology stories. And I wanted to give him something about his culture. And I wasn't able to find any on the shelves in Colorado. In your book, Anna gets to spend time with Hawaiian gods or Hawaiian demigods, Hawaiian demigoddesses. In one part of the story, she stands atop Mauna Kea and you write, There was a time when she would have loved for scientists to have the coolest telescopes ever to unlock secrets of the universe. Now she wasn't so sure she needed to know more about the space up there if it came at the cost of hurting the Aina, the land right here. Why was it important for you to share some of the issues that people in Hawaii are facing with your young audience? I love that this book gives me sort of a sneaky way to share those pieces. And I'm so glad you pointed it out. I think it's so valuable to explain in accessible terms what is going on in different cultures on a very feet on the ground kind of level, not using big sciencey words, not getting heavy into politics, just looking at what different people value and what different people are struggling with. And this book gives me a platform that lets me reach a heck of a lot of eyes and just share maybe another opinion that, okay, you can come from one side of things, but maybe there's another way to look at it. And I really appreciate that I was able to leave that little line in there and a couple others in the book. I want to kind of shift gears and talk about what you're here for. You're in town for a school tour. You'll be visiting Title I schools across the state and donating copies of your book to students. Can you talk about what prompted that and what you hope these students will take away from your book and your story? This is truly a once in a lifetime opportunity, I think. I can't imagine having the financial resources to recreate what I'm about to be able to do although I'd be thrilled if it happened. We need diverse books and writers and artists across the country are teaming up with me to do is visit with students at Title I schools, share a little bit about why our voices are so important and why they are so important and how much they have to look forward to because I'm a product of a Title I school for elementary school. And if you look in the acknowledgements in my book, I thank my third grade kumu that came and taught us Hawaiian culture, and I thank my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Koochi, who's actually going to come to my talk in Waikawaina. I'm super excited. But the things they're learning at those schools are valuable and will serve them for the rest of their life. But also, I remember going to a lot of scholastic book fairs when I was a kid and, you know, leafing through all the books and trying not to look too conspicuous as I left empty-handed because they're expensive. So being able to give the books, like an actual hardcover new book to the kids at all these schools, it just, I'm so, so excited. And I don't care if they want it or not, but they will have a shiny new book to do with as they please. And that makes me very, very happy. Wow, you brought up the Scholastic Book Fairs. I remember those too. I don't remember any books being about 
Hawaii or Hawaii people no. or Hawaiians at that time too, Mm-mm. right? So there's a saying in publishing about windows and mirrors, right? And books can act as a window or as a mirror. And right now, or when we were growing up, especially exactly what you're describing, all of those books were windows to other lives, to other experience, to other people. What I want to provide is a mirror to let let the kids see their own culture reflected back at them, maybe for the first time in some cases in this genre, in this age grouping, and in a adventurous, like fictional sort of way, not your teachers teaching you about the old legends and myths. Another event that you're here for Saturday afternoon, you'll be part of a talk story with six Pacific Islander and Asian authors, all women, at the Ala Moana Barnes & Noble. The topic is the importance of representation in publishing and AANHPI solidarity. I feel like we're seeing an uptick in AANHPI representation in film and TV. Is there the same need to continue to call for representation in publishing as well? I think so. I think there's a need to call for it across all media ever, but especially in publishing because it can serve as the foundation for so many of those other larger media eventually. But I do think that these women that I'm going to be meeting with on Saturday are incredibly smart and active and strong in their communities. And it's going to be, I haven't ever been in the same room as them, and I cannot wait to feel what that's going to feel like. But yes, the more we can get our voices out there, the more people will realize we are not a monolith. We have individual experiences. We have individual stories to tell. And I think that's super important. So people don't just look at my book and think that's what all part Hawaiians go through. Doing anything for the first time, especially doing something like writing your first novel, is bound to be full of interesting moments along the way. Is there a funny story or a special moment along your journey to write and publish this book that you could share with the audience? I think the most exciting moment is still to come because I cannot wait to go back to Waikia and see my fourth grade teacher who kind of set me on this journey and the fact that it's all kind of coming full circle yeah. and coming back to the place that I started is just chicken skin. It's good. That's pretty exciting. Make sure you bring a box of tissues, right? Oh, I'm going to be a wreck. Are you kidding me? I'm so glad I've made it just through this without crying. Like, that's amazing for me. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming in today, Malia. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This is great. And that was author Malia Monakea talking with H.R.S. Russell Subiano about her new middle grade novel, Lay and the Fire Goddess. It's available online and at your local bookstores. Monakea will be part of two events on Oahu this week, uh, this Saturday, a talk story at the shop in Kaimuki in the morning and an Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander author panel at Barnes & Noble in the afternoon. We'll have links to both events on the conversation page of our website later today. Getting ready to harvest today's backyard quiz answer. Earlier, we delved into Hawaii's avocado history. This popular fruit originated in South America and has become a favorite menu item all around the world. Horticulturist Don Marin is credited for introducing avocados to Hawaii in the early 19th century. The first major introduction of seedling materials was in Lahaina in 1853. And, you know, we're home to many different varieties of avocados, including the Bishore, Malama, Green Gold, and Haas. But it is the Charbel cultivar that was developed in Queensland, Australia, that represents the majority of commercial acreage. In the 1980s, Hawaii's avocado farmers made a concerted effort to grow and export charbel avocados. It was unfortunate that agricultural regulations and high shipping costs proved to be costly barriers. The industry never took off once uh, uh, Hawaiian avocados exported to the continent required certification, proving that the fruit was free of fruit flies and larvae. Hard to do. 
And our winner today, Bradley from the Big Island. He knew the answer. That's today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Imagine 100 Paniolos on horseback. Well, that's what's in store at the Parade of Paniolos to celebrate Hawaii's cowboy history. Joan Anderson shares the story behind the spectacle of the Parade of Paniolos, depicting Hawaii's history since the 1700s. We're perpetuating the role of Paniolo in Hawaii and just making people aware that, you know, Paniolo goes way back and has a lot of roots here. We don't want to lose it all. And so you are involved in putting on events just so those stories live on. Exactly. And I was past president. I just got off as president. Beginning of this year, I was there for four years. So, yeah, I am involved with Paniola Preservation. And it's something that we want, you know, our kids, the youth to know about because you look around, like a lot of people in Oahu, they don't even know this place exists. I know that the Heritage Center over there is really involved in making sure that the, the history is intact. Yes. So tell us about this event. You started this, what, four years ago? Paniel Preservation Society did it four years ago, yes. And we weren't going to do it again. <laughs> but it was such a great success that everyone says, oh, you have to. So we let it go, and four years later, here we are doing it again. Anna Lindsay Perry Fisk was a lady that grew up in Waimea, and she had a ranch, and it was called Anna Ranch, right down here in Waimea Town. And she pretty much ran it herself with a couple um, foremen. And so she started this thing, and she's part Hawaiian, and so she started this thing back in the 60s in her front yard, and she did it every other year as a benefit for American Heart Association. And so she had a lot of the costumes and she did I think she stopped in the late 70s and then I think it has been done twice after that and then in 2019 PPS took it over and we did it up at Waikiki Ranch and then we're doing it again this year. So tell us about what's in store. We've got over a hundred riders coming on in full costume starting in the 1700s with oh we've got Captain Cleveland, we've got Vancouver, Cook, the botanist that went around Mauna Kea, David Douglas, and we've got the different princesses of the different islands. The John Palmer Parker family is represented. A lot of the Ali'is, Kamehameha III. Well, this event is billed as Old Hawaii on Horseback. Yes, yes. It's a historical event with horses. And in the verbiage talking about it, you know, we will be telling everyone, you know, what Captain James Cook did, what he did for Hawaii and Cleveland and, you know, the Wyomino man that went up to Cheyenne and won the steer roping back in 1920s and uh, Kamehameha, the missionaries, everyone that had something to do with Hawaii from like the 1700s is in there. Right. This We're talking the Vaqueros. Yes. Yes. And it's amazing because I just uh, did an interview with someone with the Hawaii Polo Association, and they were saying, gosh, you know, it was Alan Ho. He's descended from Vaqueros, who went to the Big Island and were a part of that Paniolo history. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people that are tied to the Paniolo history and even the Ali'is. And a lot of the Ali'is, um, can't remember which one, but she was a great horsewoman. Yeah, so this is all part of highlighting Hawaii history on horseback. And it is a big fundraiser for PPS, our Paniola Preservation Society. And so where does the money go toward? I mean, what types of events do you put on? Every other year we have a big sit-down dinner with a live auction, Paniola style. And money goes to paying for running the building. We've got a little museum store in there. You know, we just tented the building. That's, what, 20 grand. We do scholarships to high school rodeo kids. We pick kids, a boy and a girl, who have participated in rodeo to just give them a scholarship. You know, we do help 
the high school rodeo is giving our, you know, they can use our premises for their events and things like that. So we're very open to doing that. You know, we want to help the youth, the kids that are involved with the Paniolo lifestyle. And it's not only rodeo, it's the ranches, the ranches kids, and we're just trying to keep it alive. Well, we have seen so many of our cowboys really make their mark when it comes to competitions back on the mainland. I mean, over the years, over the decades. We've had some good guys up there representing Hawaii. It's preserving the ranching history, whether it's through rodeo. You know, a lot of them are ranchers and rodeo participants. So it's kind of a broad, mainly just the the ranching, the heritage, the equine industry. We're learning so much about pasture land and grazing land, how that's important, you know, to help yeah. with things like fire management, mm-hmm. you know, because that's in the forefront of people's minds these days. Yeah. I mean, grazing, you know, the cattle keep the, the grass down. I mean, without that, you, that's how you end up with these, you know, huge fires that take over and the grasslands and because the cattle aren't, you know, eating it down. And, and so that's very important. So what else do you want to share about the Paniolo Preservation Society and the Heritage Center? Well, we have the Cowboy Hall of Fame there, Paniolo Cowboy Hall of Fame, and it's given to us by the Cattlemen Association. So our building supports that, and we've got all the cowboys in there with a little brief history and everything in there. And then we have a little museum store, and we have, oh, saddles, and it's kind of a, a little history of starting when they were shipping cattle out to the, the shipping boats and shipping them off to Oahu. And, and we've got a big pa'u room there with all the women that have been working on ranches. We've got a big life-size horse with a woman sitting on it and draped in pa'u. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, all our uh, pa'u riders that we see participating in parades, you know, even here on Oahu, I mean, that's just a real spectacle. Oh, yeah, it's neat to see, yeah. And that was Joan Anderson, who is with the Paniolo Preservation Society, talking with us about an event this weekend in Waimea at Waikiki Ranch from 10 to 1. Uh, it'll, it'll feature uh, 100 horseback riders highlighting Hawaii car- cowboy history from ranching to rodeos. Look for links on how to buy tickets on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we've got a Hanaho show for you celebrating the year of the Kahuli, or Native Hawaiian snail. Got a snail story to share? Color Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find the conversation uh, segments on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts or on our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.